Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Hi everyone, Om Shanti, Shalom, Salam Alaikum, welcome to The Next Normal in collaboration with America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna, and I love our Wednesdays. I should start to call them Happy Wednesdays because we look forward to these insightful, powerful conversations that we have with our fellow travelers on this planet. Wow. Sometimes wow is an understatement. Wow in terms of, did they just do that? Or wow in like, wow, they just did that. My special guest, Matthew Fox is a spiritual theologian, an Episcopalian priest, and an activist for gender and racial and eco-justice. Now, would you believe he has written 39 books that have been translated in over 60 languages? As the founder of the University of Creation Spirituality in California and the Cosmic Mass, he conducts dozens of workshops each year. Matthew is the recipient of many awards, but including the Abbey Courage of Conscience Peace Award. Recent projects include Order of the Sacred Earth and Daily Meditations with Matthew Fox, as well as the Cosmic Mass. His most recent book is Essential Writings on Creation Spirituality. I am so honored to welcome our beautiful, beautiful soul brother, Matthew Fox, on air. Matthew, welcome, welcome, welcome. Mr. Gina, I'm real glad to be on your program and that you have a program like this that gets some wisdom into the world, uh, yes. a world that is so, what should I say, suffering and in peril at this time. So it's good to have our conversation. I'm looking forward to it. For years, I've enjoyed watching you, listening to you, learning from you. And you refer to creation spirituality as a paradigm shift for our perilous times. No. Can you kind of educate me a little bit on what is creation spirituality? How did you come to discover it? For me, I would have interpreted that based on nothing that you've said, 
creation spirituality for me would have been where individuals are activating the depths of the purity in their conscience and everything they do just shows spiritual presence. What's your definition of creation spirituality? Well, I think that's kind of a fine uh, culmination of the journey. But in the West, we've, religion has tended to start with sin and redemption for the last 500 years or so. And I think that was actually due to the pandemic of the 14th century, the bubonic plague that killed one out of three people. And I think it ignited fear in people's minds and hearts about nature and about creation. Because, you know, they had no science, they had no vaccines, they had no idea where it was coming and how it was going to end. But when you go back to our real sources, it's the sacredness of creation where our existence begins. For example, the first chapter of Genesis is really a cosmology. It said, you know, first came the light and the, the sun and the moon and the planets and all this, uh, the plants and animals. And then at the end comes a human being. And each time that something arrives, the Bible says, it is good. It is good. And at the end, after humans arrive, it says, it is very good. And that word in Hebrew can also be translated very beautiful. So the Bible begins not with the human, but so much religion begins with the human. And I don't think we're going to get out of our human problems just by thinking about ourselves. And I think the crisis we're in today about the earth is evidence of this, you see. So creation begins with the big picture, as, of course, so many uh, religions do, Hinduism and Buddhism and all this, you know, where we come from. And of course, today with science, we have a new creation story that tells us the universe as we know it is 13.8 billion years old. And again, humanity and the earth is late in that long journey. So I think this arouses and awakens a sense of the sacredness of existence that we get out of our little anthropocentric world. For example, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. No, there's 13.8 billion years of work in an earth, and that's why we are. And thinking is nice, and is part of being here, I hope, but it's not the origin of anything. I mean, our thinking isn't. The consciousness of the universe is, and we can well, God. What you're saying is something so profound. You know, here I'm looking at my whole life and my whole spiritual journey as a result of thought process. Let me just hold it right there. So I'm an energy, a soul. I've entered this body called matter because the body is made up of the five elements. And somehow the energy of the soul expresses itself through this body according to its recording, its consciousness, with whatever vibration the soul is carrying. Now, when I break it down with some ego and a little bit of attachment and make it a little saucy... <laughs> Then I'll say that I'm a woman and I'm half Indian and I'm half Jamaican. I'm raised in America. I've done this. I have all these awards. I am that. I'm this. Okay, fine. But it reduces the power of the soul when I put it in these small packages. And sometimes I wonder, Matthew, if we are inflicting unnecessary soul pain on ourselves by reducing our existence into these little boxes. And so when we do talk about what Descartes said, I think so I am, don't your thoughts have a influence on the way that you feel as a human being? What are your feelings on just what I've shared? Well, certainly they do, but there's a consciousness that's bigger than ours. 
and that's what ignites our own consciousness, our own creativity, for example. I wrote a book called Creativity, where the divine and the human meet. And I think when people are undergoing a creative experience, and we call that art as meditation, actually, in my educational programs, is a conscious effort to bring the spirit alive in us. And there's so many kinds of meditation, as you certainly know. And there's sitting meditation, there's emptying meditation, there's walking meditation, there's so much, there's yoga and so many other kinds. But my point is that the creativity itself is, I think, co-creating with spirit, with the greater consciousness, so that our consciousness grows. Meister Eckhart, one of my favorite mystics, who, by the way, Kumar Swami, the wonderful Hindu scholar, who was fluent in 36 languages, which makes me just kind of aghast. He said that reading Meister Eckhart is like reading the Upanishads, and that the whole sentences in Eckhart that sound like they were translated from the Sanskrit. And this is a 14th century Dominican uh, Christian friar, and I was in the Dominicans for 34 years before I was expelled for being a feminist and other things. But my point is that Eckhart talks, too, about the presence of the divine in all things, and certainly in our consciousness. And he says, God is divided to watch our soul enlarge. So that whole invitation to enlarge, you see, to grow our consciousness. So we link more fully with the larger consciousness. Like Thomas Aquinas, who just preceded Eckhart, was a Dominican also. He said that what makes the human special is that we are capable of the universe. Kapax University. You know, that our curiosity and our mind, just what you talk about, our capacity for thinking and feeling is so vast. But just like you say, we get reduced to these small things, as you say, the ego or the identification, the IDs, our bios. And yet the mystical experience breaks through all that. And it's about something very large. It's about grandeur. And immensity is, Gaston Bachelard says, immensity intensity, and intimacy. All that comes yes. together in the human, I think. Oh, I love that. And it's interesting the way that you said that. There's a few things I'm pulling out, that the consciousness is even larger than I think I am. So I was interpreting that, Matthew, that, you know, okay, you have your individual world of energy that can be as large as you wish it to be based on your understanding that attachment is reducing your power. You know, the moment you get attached to any of your five senses or your role, you've just lost all the power that you could have gotten from the divine, from the consciousness. And the other part that touched my heart a lot, because I love to be creative, was when you shared in your last book that the divine and the creation, wow, how magnificent is that when I can allow myself to be so open that the divine can really touch my little limited world and broaden it as large as it can be. And for the very first time, Matthew, because of you and I having this conversation, I'm coming to the realization this era that we're in is to enlarge in our consciousness, really. It's for people to really begin to step out of their limited boxes and actually experience what it means to be alive, what it really means to live. I've had that feeling, but the awareness now gets deeper. So you're definitely onto something when you said what you've shared. But you've also said that with humanity, it's staring into its little bit own of its extinction. If not by climate change, then by war. It is time to dig deeply into our spiritual roots, isn't it? To find some new direction. So 
So how would you characterize the times that we're in and what do you think we are here to learn now? I would call it art. You know, the myths just talk about the dark night of the soul. And I talk today about the dark night of our species. I think our entire species is in a dark night. And but the dark night is characterized by that we're in a place where we don't see clearly the future, where there's very little light and where there's a lot of suffering. But also, and the mystics tell us about this, it's a wonderful school. It's a school for learning deeper things. It's where we learn wisdom. It's where we learn compassion. And it's where we learn just what you're talking about, how our souls can and need to grow. Because when I look at today's world, and as you named it, the climate change, of course, and that and our, our genuine possibility of extinction, you know, I've been struck lately by how we found recently about of 14 other hominid cousins of ours. You know, we know about Neanderthal. And we know about the Denisons. But now in Southeast Asia, they're uncovering all kinds of cousins of ours. But the bottom line is that all 14 are extinct. Only Homo sapiens is still standing. I mean, that should wake us up, shouldn't it? You know, and say, hey, you know, we're not promised immortality as a species. You know, we got to work at it. And I feel that we're stuck in an adolescent stage and that it is an ego stage, therefore. But ego is not a bad thing. It's just that it's not the whole picture. It's necessary to create an ego and have identity and parameters and all those things that happen in adolescence, defining yourself apart from your parents, etc. But like you say, we've got to grow up and we've got to grow up fast. Science is telling us now we have seven years left, not 17 or 70 seven to shift our ways of living on this planet let me pause you right here where did we get the number of seven years left we're in 2022 now tell me the number came just a few months ago from a group of scientists speaking through the united nations and they've been studying the whole situation of climate change and they're from all over the world it's, it's an international team of scientists they've been studying it very carefully for many many years and a few years ago, they said it was 10 years. And now they're saying it's seven because we will not be able to undo. I mean, imagine when the seas rise, as they are already doing, you know, there are people living on islands for thousands of years in the Pacific who have to abandon the islands these days because the sea is rising, salt water floods the fresh water, and humans can't live without fresh water. And even in Miami, the, <laughs> there's four inches of water on the sidewalk. I was there a few years ago. And think of it, so many of our large cities are on oceans all around the world. And so we think that the immigration crisis today, whether in Europe or in America, is great. You know, wait until climate change kicks in. So, you know, we just have to wake up. And wouldn't it be wonderful if instead of spending all this money we spend on wars and all the technology and all the science that we all gathered, I don't care anyone's religion or ideology or nationhood or race, we're in this together. And so we all gather and say, how can we turn back climate change? And certainly meditation is part of, of it because for me, meditation calms the reptilian brain, our oldest brain. And without calming that brain, we can't allow the mammal brain of caring and of motherhood and of compassion to flourish. If reptilian brain is running things, you know, we are doomed as a species because there's no wisdom there. It's just a power game. 
so much of that. It's omnipresent. And, you know, you almost think, Matthew, that it is actually becoming a catalyst to even speed us up and move us forward into better times. Now, when we look at the work that you've done, creation spirituality, how can putting that into practice help with the times that we're in? Give us some points. Well, okay. We talk about the four paths of creation spirituality. The first path is the experience of awe and wonder, the via positiva of awe and wonder and gratitude and reverence. And I think we need a new dose of that today. As we learn more and more about Earth, about how beautiful it is and diverse it is and fragile it is, it fills us with wonder that this tiny planet in the midst of this huge universe that we now know is over two trillion galaxies big, each with hundreds of billions of stars, People aren't aware that our sun could hold a million Earths. And our sun is just kind of a normal-sized sun. And then we're in this tiny planet, but it's so special. We've got giraffes. Who else has giraffes? Or hippopotamuses or elephants or whales or rainforest. It's so wonderful. It's so beautiful. And it has invited us in. And how can we not be filled with gratitude and reverence and awe? And that's the via positive experience of the mysticism. And we're all mystics. That's the importance. Then the via negativa is silence, getting in touch with stillness. But it is also the experience of grief and suffering. It's those two separate things. And both of those also make us enlarge. John Macy, the Buddhist teacher, a friend of mine, she says, when the heart breaks, the whole universe can pour through. So our hearts are breaking today. There's so much grief in the world because consciously or unconsciously, we all know that the earth is being diminished in our time and much of it at our hands. So I think there are two kinds of people in the world today, those who know they're grieving and those who don't know they're grieving, but we're all grieving. We need more grieving practices. So in our cosmic mass, for example, we always have a grieving part to be a negative where we get down on all fours, which are really all sixes. And also put our forehead down the floor and we let whatever sounds want to come out from our third chakra, from our gut. And that is where we carry our grief in our gut. And if we can't get the grief out, then we're not going to be creative enough to really change our ways and reinvent the human, the way we live on the earth, the way we do education and politics and economics and all of it. So then the next path is the via creativa, out of the emptying of grieving and of silence, of the stillness meditation, comes creativity. That's when the spirit flows. My Starkard has this beautiful teaching. He says, I once had a dream. Even though a man, I dreamt I was pregnant, pregnant with nothingness. And out of this nothingness, God was born. And he talks about how we are here to give birth to the Christ, or if you will, birth to the Buddha, the Buddha nature or the image of God in the Jewish tradition. I mean, all the traditions talk about this in a little bit different way. It's the same experience. But that nothingness leads to just what you're talking about, a breakthrough and a new creation. And so that's the third path in creation. And then the fourth path is taking our creativity, not to build more bombs and not to make more money and build more pyramids with my name on it, but rather to build compassion and justice and community and all the joy and celebration that we are capable of as human beings. So those are the four paths, and they're not a trip up a ladder. I see them as spiral 
ever-enlargening spirals because when you create justice and compassion, then you return to path one. More people come to the table. There's more joy. There's more awe and wonder. And humans can produce more awe through our wonderful creativity, through our painting and our ritual and our art and our dance and our costumes and our wonderful diversity of religions and everything else. You know? Well, that's where, you know, we've observed with history how an era of renaissances, they emerge after really very challenging times. Mm-hmm. And one has to think about the beauty in the arts, whether it's in music or dance or painting or poetry or writing, just all of it actually comes from the soul. Exactly. Yeah, and if the soul is really, you know, having an intimate connection with the divine, with God, I call God Baba. If I'm having an intimate connection with Baba, then it feels like, you know, the world is starting anew. It is creating a new chapter of something refreshing. Now, there's a lot of confusion going on, especially now between the words of religious and spiritual. I mean, people are actually fighting about, well, you said I'm not spiritual, and yet they do the kindest things. So there's like such a big misunderstanding of what it actually means to be coined spiritual if you need to do that. I don't like somebody calling me a spiritual mentor, even though they introduce me like that on my bio, because I'm more than that, and I'm processing myself, and some days I'm not very spiritual. So tell us a little bit about what do you see as the difference between religion and spirituality, or the two words, religious and spiritual? I think in the West, the word religion, when you hear it, is kind of a sociological term, and even an institutional term, that it means you belong to a particular religion, or a particular church, or mosque, or synagogue, but it takes on that sociological aspect. But to me, Well, Thomas Aquinas says the essence of religion is supreme gratitude and thankfulness. I just love that. That's the via positiva, as I talk about, but it's more than that. And Meister Eckhart, who came after him, says, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would suffice. (laughs) I just love that. It gets it down to the bottom line, you know. Are we filled? And in English, it's a wonderful word, thankful. You're either full of it, or you're empty of it, you know? And to be honest, I would much rather hear somebody saying thank you to me than I'm sorry all the time. Exactly. And it just feels like when you're thankful, you're opening up so much, you know, for you and for everyone else. Exactly. And as a species, how can we not be thankful for our amazing journey that we've arrived through the apes and through, you know, all these other tribes and everything else? And here we are still, and we're talking about it, and we're doing amazing things. Like, for example, this new web telescope going out into space is going to pick up the original light of the universe. You know, when we think light, we usually think, oh, the sunlight, and that's how we define light. But no, this is a light that came way before the sun, and in fact, eventually birthed the sun, which, of course, births us. So it's just amazing what humans can do. But we have to steer our energies appropriately because we're also capable of such destruction and evil. Aquinas says one human being can do more evil than all the other species put together. I'm just stunned. How did he know that 700 years before Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot? Because there was evil existing even back then in his times. 
That's and it's been one of my biggest queries, like at what point will the energy of evil end in our minds that we actually use the gift of the divinity, of God's qualities and virtues in our life. And I know that it's happening now. I have to tell you, and I go back with a little bit of what you were sharing about even light was before the sun. You're taking me somewhere that I can't even go to yet. (laughs) And then it makes me think that we have reduced ourselves to such an insignificant energy when we're supposed to be so much more than what we are. And for some reason, in this incarnation, I am so focused to observe how energy, soul, connected with God, Baba, the Supreme Soul, can come together as one and eradicate this evil once and for all so that we can actually really understand the beauty of a soul existing in life. Because really, when you think you can love unconditionally, isn't that large versus what love is like nowadays? I mean, love has so many conditions, you know, and we look at how much energy is being put into war and keeping the marginalized in the place that they're in. There are different forms of evil, you know. In your book, you do write about it very clearly. And you've even said that we need to be educated about it and study and confront it as well. What do you mean by that? But first, how would you define evil and how can we actually find the good in it? My evil comes from an acronym called ALGE, anger, lust, greed, attachment, and ego is in me. I have to get that energy out. <laughs> What's yours? <laughs> well, I wrote a major book on evil called Sins of the Spirit, Blessings of the Flesh, Transforming Evil and Soul in Society. And I wrote it because I felt that Western religion has oversold sin. And by overselling sin, it's like the boy crying wolf all the time, you know. You're not even ready for evil. You know, we're not even aware of how profoundly evil is present. And evil is a force, I think, that is very smart, and it goes where power is, where power and decisions are made. It doesn't walk around with a sign on its back saying, I'm evil, kick me. In fact, it often has special rings and costumes and PhDs and all kinds of things going for it, you see. So it enters all these institutions. But to me, what I did was to create a new language to talk about evil, and I went east for the seven chakras. And I said to myself, if a chakra is naming high points in our physiology and psychology, where love dwells, if you will, and operates well, then maybe a chakra that's off-center, the seven chakras, will correspond to the seven capital sins of the West. And that's the new language that I devised. It was East meeting West. And I think it really works. Let me give you an example. The seven chakra, of course, at our crown of our heads, is kind of the culmination of the Kundalini fire and energy that goes up our spine through the other six chakras, and then it gets released. And when it's healthy, of course, it's light, doing just what you talked about, linking up with other people to create community, linking up with our ancestors, and with the angels, the spirit world. That is how I would name the seventh chakra. But if it's off-center, and that's how we define a sin. You know, Thomas Aquinas says uh, that sin is misdirected love. And that's a very Jewish idea. The Jewish word for sin is missing the bullseye. It's an archery term. So what's the seventh shock when it misses a bullseye? It's envy. Envy recognizes the light in other beings. But instead of saying, let's sneak up and work together, it wants to shoot it down and be the only one standing. 
And envy has everything to do with this Ukraine war that we're living in right now. Putin was envious of a democratic state next to his state, which isn't democratic, and he didn't want that to exist. And so envy often leads to war. It always leads to lies and projections and ultimately to war itself. So I do that with each of the chakras, and I think it really works. And I think it's a new language, and it's just what you are about, bringing East and West together. There's wisdom in both. And of of course, in all human tribes, there's wisdom. Let's look for that wisdom. And then, of course, the solution is that we build up the healthy chakras, that we build up that light energy here and the heart energy here and the throat energy here. That's such an important chakra. Yeah. You know, I was flying in yesterday and I was listening to the Bhagavad Gita by Ekant. And I continue to listen to that version of the Gita because it stimulates and grows and expands my vision of not only myself, but to understand the mysteries of why we're actually here. And there was something that was in it that said, you know, when you become avyakt, means so subtle, which means so pure in the way that you see yourself and the world around you, it's almost as if you will never be reduced into something called matter where you believe this is all you are. There was something so powerful about that verse in the Gita, Matthew, I can't tell you. And I keep playing it over and over again in my mind, even when I got up this morning. So you were talking about angels and, you know, we've often thought that angels were out there. In my family, and I'm not being biased, I have met so many angels. There were human beings who just emanated grace and a kind of an energy of silence and beauty and generosity. These angels are really super generous human beings. So I've actually seen angels in front of me. I've been in a room of angels in my midst. And I would look, Matthew and everyone, and I would just feel the fragrance of their goodness. So I would say, these are the angels. But now you've written about angels in your new book and in previous books too. So when we seep into your heart and soul and you think about the angels, what are angels in terms of your interpretation and their purpose of this time? Well, I wrote a book with Rupert Sheldrake a few years ago called The Physics of Angels. And Rupert Sheldrake is a British scientist. There's a lot of fun to do because very few scientists have the courage to talk about angels, but Rupert does. And one of the points that, that he emphasized was that Darwin, when he developed the theory of evolution, worked with a man named Wallace, who was a scientist also, and they together developed the theory. And when they presented it for the first time at the science conference in London, they went back to back presenting papers. And they worked together for decades, but then they had a breakup, a divorce, so to speak, and it was about angels. That Darwin said natural selection is just by chance and is war, tooth against tooth and all this. But Wallace said, no, for evolution to have happened as it has, for example, the eye, there's no way that that was just blind chance. There must have been intelligent agents guiding the process. And our name for that is angels. So everyone's heard of Darwin. No one's heard hardly of Wallace. But also Darwin was upper class and Wallace was lower class. So they were both peers as scientists. But Darwin knew how to manipulate the media. Imagine that. And Wallace either didn't know or didn't care. It could be both, you know. That's why 
Everyone knows about Dharma, but no one knows about wowness. But I introduce this because it's really exciting, I think, to learn that one of the big junctures in science, there was this discussion and debate about angels even then. So angels are about very great work. They are helping the evolutionary process. They bring intelligence in. So Thomas Aquinas says angels cannot help but love, and that they learn only by intuition, which means to me that when we're developing our intuition, our mystical and intuitive and creative side, we encounter angels. They hitchhike on the highway of intuition. And so we have this word muse, you know, muse, from which we get music and museum and all these other powerful experiences. But muses are another way to name angels, you know, who accompany us in our creative work as a, you as a journalist and a radio person. And, you know, I meet all kinds of artists who tell me about their encounters with angels. I have a friend who's from El Salvador, and he's a painter. And he says often he locks the door when he paints so no one will think he's crazy because angels come through the canvas and tell him what to paint. Now, there's a woman named Lorna Byrne, B-Y-R-N-E. You can look her up. She's amazing. She's a peasant woman from West Ireland, and she's illiterate because she was dyslexic. And when she was growing up, the doctors told her parents, your daughter is idiot. She'll never learn to read and write. Anyway, so she has experienced angels from the time she was two years old, looking up at her parents and seeing angels with her parents. And I interviewed her a few years ago at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. 1,300 people came because they had read her books. And she only wrote books when the angels told her to. It was in her 60s. And she didn't write them. She dictated them because she can't write. But they've become international bestsellers. But she said to me, there are a lot of unemployed angels in the world today. And this was down when the last financial crisis happened, you know, eight years ago. And I said, oh, no, I have to put angels to work, too. I'm trying to put my friends to work. Oh, no, she said, this is what I mean. God knows how much trouble humans are in today on the earth and is pouring angels on earth to help us, but no one's asking them for help. There are a lot of unemployed angels wandering around waiting for humans to ask for help. So I think that's very interesting information. And angels can assist us to create, and they're very intelligent. And our needs to, of course, recreate technology for the sake of energy, but also what you've been talking about, to recreate our souls, to recreate our attitudes, and to banish some of these shadow forces that we call evil, whether it's greed or envy or arrogance. And, that, you know, racism is a form of arrogance, isn't it? And so is our attitude toward the earth. That's a form of arrogance. And I connect that to the first chakra, actually, arrogance, because I see that as our refusal to look yeah. at all the beings that are supporting us. Yeah, how beautiful. Hey, everyone, if you're connecting with us, I'm speaking with the illustrious Matthew Fox, and we are talking about everything under the sun and even the sun. <laughs> so mm -hmm. as we come to a close to our beautiful chit-chat, Matthew, it's been really fantastic. I know there's one thing that's been plaguing my mind, and it's about creativity, because I'm born with that gift, and I have to nurture it with as much humility as I can possibly sum up. So how can someone who might think that they're not that creative in the least actually try to tap into their creativity, no matter who they are, what they're doing? That's one of the biggest lies in Western culture is that some people are artists and creative and others aren't. You know, the rest of us are just fumbling around. David Paladin is a wonderful Navajo painter 
who went through a tremendous dark night of the soul when he was a teenager and joined the army in the Second World War. And he was captured immediately and put in a concentration camp for four years where they tortured him. For example, on one Christmas, they nailed one foot to the floor and made him twirl for 24 hours. When he was liberated by the Americans, they found his body. He weighed 65 pounds at the bottom of a pile of dead bodies, and he was paraplegic. They took him back to his reservation in Arizona, and his elders said, well, you have a choice. You can spend the rest of your life in a veteran's hospital in a wheelchair, or we'll try to heal you in the ancient ways. He said, let's try the ancient ways. They took him and threw him into an ice-cold river over his head, this paraplegic. He said when he hit the water, he was more angry at his elders than he was at the Nazis who attended this to him. But it worked. He walked. The rest. He made pilgrimages by foot to Mexico and back, several of them. But his elders told him later in his life that the reason you went through that suffering as a young man was to initiate you as a shaman. And one of the things he learned as a shaman is this. He said, I'm so tired of white people telling me they're not artists. If you can talk, you're an artist. Because talking is a creative act. You're converting your feelings, your experience, your dreams into words. So we're all artists at some level. And, you know, many Native American tribes don't even have a word for artists because they just take it for granted we're all artists. And we all have our gift to give to the world. And it may be the art of raising children or being a grandparent or the art of decorating your house or the art you take to your work and so forth. But we all have to find that artist in us because that is the image of God in us. You know, that is where we join forces, if you will, we co-create with spirit. And we are the hands of God. God is expecting us to give birth. So we have to undo that uh, misinformation. Yeah, I can see that since the pandemic, we're learning to redo ourselves or reset many things. You know, you've been pointing out a lot of common themes, things that I love. I'm so glad I got my PhD from St. Thomas Aquinas, by the way. Because you mentioned so much about St. Thomas and just how beautifully mystical his wisdom was back in the day. So here we are, you know, in this particular journey in life. And I know we're coming to a close to a wonderful time together, which I'm sure you also enjoyed. And there's a lot of suffering in the world, Matthew. And your compassion emerges because you're supposed to care about the well-being of our humanity. I know I do, and being Pisces does not help, Matthew, just to share with you. But when do you know that your compassion has moved to pity? Because pity can really bring you down, that you actually stop helping the person. But many of us mix up the pity with compassion. Any advice? Any thoughts? Yes. Well, in the biblical tradition, as Meister Eckhart says, compassion means justice. So compassion is the work of our heart and hands. Uh, Hildegard of Bingen did a great painting of the blue man inside of all of us. And the blue man is the healing Christ inside of all of us. And she has the blue man doing this, you see, because when you do this, you can actually feel that your energy of your rib cage is lifting your heart up. So compassion is putting your heart into your hands. In other words, our work. We do our compassion in our work. And it's not a sentimental thing, and it's certainly not about pity, because pity is about dropping crumbs from the table. It is about interdependence. It is how we're in this circle of suffering together, and we're in a circle of joy together. And both of them 
call forth our compassion. We, our celebrations together, our works of compassion, and our relieving one another's pain, and our working for justice, because in many ways, it's the structures of injustice, whether they be racial or gender or sexual or economic or political and so forth, that carry on the work of evil, that we have to stand up to injustice. And I think that's one of the gifts of the Jewish prophets, of which Jesus was one, that we learn to say no. Uh, yes to life is our mysticism, but no is our resistance and interfering with those forces of injustice that want to dominate. And so compassion is not something about pity. It's not sentimental. It is about working for justice in whatever calling we are called to. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing to see people do good work. Think of all the, the nurses and doctors and hospital people during this COVID time, how brave they were to go to work every day and such long hours and such suffering, seeing so many people die. And it is a celebration of the glory of human work that we can be instruments of compassion and even of joy. And you mentioned Aquinas. Okay. Can I offer one sentence from Aquinas that I love? Because mm-hmm. you brought the subject of the universe up and why we're here. He says, sure joy is God's, and this demands companionship. So for Aquinas, the whole universe exists because of joy. And with joy, we always want to share joy with others. You don't keep it in. It's like this. It's this kind of energy. And I think we have to keep that in mind during hard times, during fierce times like ours, that the big picture is about joy. It's about sharing beauty. And we're part of it. And, you know, let's go to work. Mm, Beautiful. Well said. Matthew Fox, it's been great having you on The Next Normal and on America Meditating Radio. You're sharing has really taken us to a completely higher level of thinking. So we thank you so very much. Leave us with a website that will be best for our viewers and listeners to contact you if they want to go deeper into what you're teaching and offering and get a copy also of your new book. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's just MatthewFox2Ts.org. That's my webpage. And then Daily Meditations with Matthew Fox, all one word, .org is where I give away these free meditations every morning. And you can find me there also. So MatthewFox.org or Daily Meditations with Matthew mm-hmm. Fox. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you, so you. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. We took you to the stars and we brought you down below. We even took you to angels and we also ended your pity. Where did you not go in today's conversation? Wasn't it riveting? I know it was for you. I know it was for me. So for more information, please go to visit some work that Matthew Fox is doing. And don't forget to get a copy of my new book, Meditation, Intimate Experiences with the Divine. It's doing really, really well, and it really will open you up to what Matthew was saying, a higher consciousness, something bigger is available for us if we're just willing to take the journey. Change the thinking, you'll change your reality. If you see yourself only in the box of a woman, black, white, rich, poor, then see yourself as a soul playing the role Maybe your whole destiny will change. Maybe you'll end up in a completely different light of consciousness. Thank you again for joining us. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And I'm suspecting that we're actually here on the planet to learn to love each other the same. Please, let's do that some more. Take care. See you again real soon. Om Shanti. Meditation. 
intimate experiences with the divine through contemplative practices. My new book that is out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and you can get it from Sacred Stories Publishing or on America Meditating Radio. The quieter you become, the more you're able to hear. One of my opening pages of this book I have heard time and time again that when you go into the stories and the narratives of the 37 authors that are sharing with you their mystical experiences of the divine, something in you changes. It has already reached number one three times in mysticism category and in new age category for new releases. I want you to get a copy for yourself and tell me what you feel as a result of closing that final page of this book. Meditation intimate experiences with the divine through contemplative practices it's calling you can you hear it rice alley restaurant wishes you happy holidays located at 6838 piedmont in gainesville virginia we're a family-owned restaurant and offer authentic asian cuisine and sushi come Savor our delicacies made with love and enjoy the perfect ambiance. We look forward to seeing you there. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in. And do Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.